Welcome along to the Care Team Sessions podcast. This is a podcast of talks from our monthly CPD events. For those that aren't already familiar with us, the West Midlands Care Team is a charity pre-hospital enhanced care team operating in the Birmingham area for over 30 years now. Care Team Sessions CPD events have something for all clinical levels from community responders right through to experienced in-hospital clinicians along with medics from other services like police and fire. We want to share the team's knowledge and experience with you. So Care Team Sessions is free to attend or to listen back to on this podcast. It's also an opportunity to raise money for the charity, which would help us to continue to do the work we do. If you'd like a CPD certificate for listening to this podcast, we ask for a donation of five pounds. Details of how to donate and claim your certificate are in the podcast description. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. Search at WM Care Team. Enjoy the podcast. So, uh, yeah, I'm Jenny. I'm an ED reg at the QE and one of the FEM fellows on the care team at the moment. Um, I am going to talk to you about impact brain apnea, which I must apologise is quite physiology heavy. However, if I don't go into some of the physiology, then it, it won't make sense. So. I've apologised in advance. Um, how many people have had teaching on impact brain apnea before? Excellent, zero. Well, there we go. At least I can hopefully teach you something new tonight. Um, so impact brain apnea is sort of does what it says on the tin. So it's an impact to your brain that causes apnea. So the posh definition is any concussive blow to the head that results in a period of apnea or disventilation. Um, so these are patients so these are patients who are doing things like motorsports come off their motorbike and have a really nasty head injury they get a big force to the head and then they stop breathing completely impact brain apnea was first researched and discovered back in 1874 it's something we've known about for over 200 years however after 100 years 200 years of research they stopped researching it because they realized there was nothing we could do about it because all the patients died um, however now we have pre-hospital teams we have paramedics who get to these patients quickly and we have things like citizen aid and uh, good sam and we can tell bystanders what to do we can now save these patients lives again so over the last 10 or so years, impact brain apnea has become something we are looking at again because we can make a difference. Um, and a lot of that work is because of this man. So this is John Hines. He was a, an anaesthetist who, um, as you can see, worked as a doctor in your TT and your motocross uh, originally in Ireland. Um, and he and some of the uh, couple of London consultants, so Gareth Davis and Mark Wilson, noticed the pattern of these patients who were on the TT tracks. They were doing high speed they would come off, they'd have their helmets on, not a mark on them, but when they got to the patients within 30 seconds, they wouldn't be breathing. Um, and that's what has sparked that interest. So all the research I'm gonna talk about tonight is because of these three chaps who've brought it back to life. So that is a very text heavy slide, but that just shows you all of the researches, the studies that have been done since Cock and Flane in 1874, um, looking at impact brain apnea. So the original one started off looking at some, uh, I think it was cats, um, and it's been done again and again over the years with dogs, cats, rats, mice, all sorts of things. And it all comes out with the same thing. If you hit an animal or a person over the head, 
doesn't matter if it's with a concussive force, uh, an explosion by the head. If you hit them with enough force, they will stop breathing. Um, they will have a period where they stop breathing and then depending on how hard you've hit them, they'll start breathing again. Um, and this apneic phase is the bit where we can intervene and make a difference. And the really important thing to take home from all of this is what I'm not talking about is a traumatic brain injury. So I'm not talking about patients with bleeds on their heads. I'm not talking about structural changes. Every single one of these animals, when you dissect their brain at the end of these experiments, have got a completely structural, normal brain. So what I'm talking about is a cardiac uh, or a, a respiratory cardiac reflex from a brain injury. So you get a hit and it's a reflex that you stop breathing. It's not that the neurons have been damaged and that you've got a horrible brain injury. And that's why it's, re it's a really important difference. And this is what I'm talking about. So, so you can see these are, uh, this was a study done in 1998. Um, you've got three different forces there. So you've got a light blow, medium blow, and a hard blow to the head. This was done in uh, anaesthetized rat. They didn't feel the pain. And um, the important thing to look at here is you've got four lines for each one of these. That one there is your respiratory pattern. So that part line up there is where you've got hit over the head. So these animals are breathing normally. They're hit over the head and they stop breathing. And then about a minute later, they just start breathing all by themselves. And we've not done anything for them. They've just had a reflex apnea and then they start breathing again. The thing to note here, which will be really important later on is actually there's been no change in the blood pressure of those animals and there's been no change in the intracranial pressure so it has just been a respiratory reflex if you hit them a little bit harder you see they're breathing they stop breathing and then this is what we're talking about with disventilation so i've got a nice video to show you in a minute but here they're taking really big deep agonal breaths but they're not breathing properly and associated with these deep agonal breaths you've got a huge spike in your blood pressure and an increase in your intracranial pressure. Um, and then as we'll come back to a little bit later on, about 40 minutes in, these patients then stop breathing completely. And if that's not a second insult, this is all to do with catecholamines, which is what I'm gonna come on to. These ones get hit and start breathing again by themselves, but eventually die and they all die. And then the, term, the, the one that is unfortunately irreversible these patients that get hit even harder they stop breathing and never start breathing so this group here these top two groups are the ones that we can make the difference in another study that then looked at this sort of single punches that we see all over the news on a night out someone's been punched in the head and now they're dead a lot of those are actually thought to be impact brain apnea so they get punched they go down and they stop breathing and again some of them will have structural changes bleeds nastiness but a lot of them will have no changes to their brain. Um, so they looked at the effect of ethanol or alcohol on these, these patients, and they looked at it on a group of three, three pigs. One of them, they just hit on the head. The other, they hit on the head with alcohol on board, and the other, they just gave alcohol to. And they discovered that if you've got alcohol on board, the threshold that you need to be, the force you need to be hit with drops. So you will become apneic with a much lighter hit and also the length of time that you're apneic for increases. So if you've got, and that's so that for our patients, if they've got alcohol on board and they get punched in the head, then you're gonna be apneic for longer and it's gonna take a lot less force to get you there. 
Okay, I'm really sorry. This is the physiology bit. <laughs> don't, don't get too lost on me. So there is a reason that this happens, and that is because of something called the pre-Botzinger complex, which is a little group of neurons that sit in your medulla. Um, they are like the pacemaker in your heart that creates that cardiac rhythm. They create that force uh, or that sort of they generate your inspiratory rhythm. So the reason you start breathing in is because of a little group of neurons in the pre-Botzinger complex. And some people a lot cleverer than me have done an experiment looking at what happens. So you've got two pre-Botzinger complexes, one on each side of your medulla. If they take out one pre-Botzinger complex, then you become disventilating. So you don't become totally apneic. You just get this horrible disventilation if you hit them a bit harder and take out both complexes then you're apneic and that's why sometimes you'll see people get hit and then they'll just make this really horrible breathing pattern um, and then get back to normal so a lot of it depends on quite where you get hit so if you take out one or both complexes and then obviously the force of, of that impact as well and um, this is a video of impact brain apnea and what it does so that is all of the mumbo jumbo I've just been telling you, but that, that sums it up a lot nicer than I can. So there's the head hit, there's the apneic phase, and then there's the disventilation, and then there's back to normal breathing. He fits in that nice middle category of the three charts that you saw. Unfortunately, what we know is about to happen in 40 minutes is that he will probably arrest down the line because of a catecholamine surge. So that's what we'll come on to. And that's actually why Mark Wilson created Good Sam originally was because he was researching impact brain apnea and realised that we were going to go around and talk about it and tell people about this thing that we could do something about. But actually, your dispatch time, you're going to get there 10 minutes after it's happened to help these patients and to stop them getting that catecholamine surge. You need to be at their side within 30 seconds and ventilating them to stop the catecholamine release, to stop this next phase. So. Um, that was part of why Good Sam was, was sort of his brainchild because he wanted to try and get people there faster. Why do these people who have a reflex that stops them breathing end up getting a secondary brain injury and in a nasty way? Um, and it's because during that phase where he wasn't breathing properly, he became hypoxic and hypercapnic. If you become hypercapnic, so your carbon dioxide levels in your blood go up, then you get cerebral vasodilation. So the blood vessels in your brain dilate, which disrupts the blood brain barrier. And that causes leaking of fluid. So a vasogenic edema. So you get swelling in your brain because your carbon dioxide levels in your blood have gone up. The other thing is your oxygen levels are gonna go down because he's not breathing and then he's not breathing properly. And as your oxygen levels go down, you get ischemia in your brain. So you're not providing it with the oxygen it needs. When you get ischemic bits of your brain, it automatically results in accumulation of glutamate and aspartate, which causes those three things to happen. So you get excitation of the cells, you get an influx of calcium into the cells, which causes oxidative stress, and then you get an influx of sodium and chloride, of which water will always follow, which causes astrocyte swelling. So your actual, the cells, your astrocytes of the brain will swell and they will die. So in that very short time, the effect of being hypoxic and hypercapnic will mean that you've got vasogenic edema and cytotoxic edema happening. When you get swelling, 
you're going to end up with a raised intracranial pressure because you're, you lose that auto-regulation of blood flow to the brain. And this is what we mean by like a secondary brain injury. So impact brain apnea is that primary, you've hit your head, we can't do anything about that. But the secondary brain injury is the thing we're trying to prevent and the thing we're trying to, to fix early. Um, it's taken it into hospital slightly, but these are the scans that we'll see on those patients. So when you do a CT, they'll often get reported as a diffuse axonal injury, which means all of the axons have been sheared when they've hit the ground. But when you actually take these to post-mortem and look at their brains, they don't have the axon shearing. It's an, an, an encephalopathy picture from the hypoxia that we've just explained. So when you look at the tissue, they're not actually a diffuse axonal injury at all. Okay, so catecholamines. Everyone happy with what a catecholamine is? It's totally fine if you don't. No, there's a few nods. That's cool. So catecholamines are your sort of adrenaline, noradrenaline, dopamine. So they're things that you naturally are producing. Um, one of the ITU professors said to me the lovely phrase on neuro-ITU where we've got lots of these head injuries, when the brain is injured, it cries tears of catecholamines. Um, and that is important because of something we already know. So this is a CT scan of a, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, a classic CT. This isn't because of trauma. These just happen. Aneurysms burst, things like that. We've already done the studies that show that when we look at these bleeds on the brain, 64% of them will result in a change to your ECG. So an isolated brain bleed is changing how your heart is working. Most commonly it's a QT prolongation, but it can be lots of other things. 28% of them will have a raised troponin when you do their blood tests. So we can see that there is damage to the heart in these patients. And this is why there's damage to the heart. So you get your neurological injury, you've been hit on the head. You end up, your head is directly linked with your heart through your sympathetic nervous system. So straight from your brain to your heart, there is sympathetic innovation to the heart, which is here. You therefore have these sympathetic terminals. And when you get the head injury, it signals a release of catecholamines directly onto the heart. So you're re releasing adrenaline straight onto the surface of your heart. This adrenaline works through your beta-1 receptors and causes an influx of calcium into the cells. Calciums make cells contract. So your heart cells are contracting, your mycites are contracting, which is results in ATP depletion. So the things that make your cells contract end up being used up. And so you've got ATP depletion, which means your mitochondria, so the engines of the cells can't work and therefore your cells die. Um, and we see a really specific pattern um, called contraction band necrosis. So around where the, the nerve fibers are on the heart, you'll see a contraction band of, of dead cells, basically, from an isolated head injury. If you've got bits of your heart that are now necrotic, it can't beat properly, it can't contract. So therefore, you're going to have a decreased cardiac output. You're going to become hypotensive. You're going to get arrhythmias. And this is then, hypertension is the last thing you want if you've got a brain injury or a head injury because you're already struggling to perfuse and now you're hypotensive and you even more can't perfuse your brain. So that, I, I think, is the end of the science. <laughs> but that's why a head injury is causing heart problems. Um, do we see it? And the answer is yes. So Kent Surrey Sussex Air Ambulance did a study 
looking at their isolated traumatic brain injuries. So these people have gone through a full CT scanner. They've got nothing else apart from an isolated head. Um, these patients had 56% of them were unstable, cardiovascularly unstable pre-hospitally, and eight of them were so unstable they gave them blood transfusions. So we are seeing this cardiovascular instability just because of the head injuries. Um, we're also seeing it in hospital. So these patients, 139 patients, they did echoes on them one day after they were admitted to ITU with isolated head injuries. Of those patients, 22% had an abnormal echo of which 12% was a reduced ejection fraction, and 17% had regional uh, wall motion abnormalities, so parts of the heart that just weren't beating, um, again, from just isolated head injuries. And as you know, your sympathetic nervous system goes everywhere, so it's not just your heart that's affected, but it's the bit that kills you quickest, so we talk about it. You'll get raised in um, hepatic markers, you'll get damage to the lining of the lungs, so you'll end up with uh, pulmonary edema, which then makes you prone to infections. Same happens in your gut, you lose the, perm the increased permeability, the lining of the gut sort of breaks down slightly. Um, you'll get uh, derangement in your renal function. So again, isolated head injuries actually have a huge effect throughout the body. So what can we do about it? Well. There've been a few trials looking at how we stop the catecholamine surge. How do we stop this effect? Um, to be honest, they're all pretty useless. This trial looked at 12 patients with head injuries. They gave six of them 80 milligrams of propranolol and they didn't give the other six. All 12 of them died. Um, however, <laughs> the six of them who had the propranolol when they looked at their hearts afterwards, didn't have any contraction band necrosis. So although it didn't change the mortality, we were seeing some benefit on the heart tissue. However, I don't think you can change any practice based on six patients. So uh, the jury's still out on that one. And as we know, beta blockers in trauma aren't a clinician's go-to. So um, there'll be some debate. And just trying to bring this sort of all together and why impact brain apnea is important is because it's one of the bleeding mimics. So it's head injuries are something in the pre-hospital, you'll see them. These patients are pale, clammy, they look like they're bleeding, but actually they're not. So the take home is obviously that hypertension and trauma doesn't necessarily mean they're bleeding. There is a whole load of other things here that can make that patient look like they're bleeding. They're gonna, you wanna give them some blood, but they don't need it. So if you've been stabbed in the abdomen and viscerated, that vagal tone means that you're gonna become uh, pale, clammy, you'll probably become hypotensive, but actually there's no injury. If you've been stabbed and run away, you're going to have a really high lactate. You're going to have a, a lactic acidosis, which can cause cardiogenic shock on its own. If you've got a tamponade around your heart and it can't beat, you're going to become hypotensive, but that's from 150 mils of blood loss, which is nothing. Um, we've talked about brain apnea. Tension pneumothorax, if you're compressing the vessels, you're hypotensive, that's nothing to do with bleeding. Um, and then things we do, again, back to the iatrogenic, this is sort of a surgical sieve, <laughs> back to the iatrogenic stuff. Um, have we intubated that patient? We've got them on too high a PEEP. Is that why that they're hypotensive or have they had an anaphylaxis to the drugs we've given them? So this is just trying to bring it all back into your practice. Impact brain apnea will fit in that bleeding mimic. These patients will look okay initially, but then become profoundly hypotensive. Okay, I'm now gonna try and turn this into a case 
using Santa so that it all works. So this is your, this is the patient that we're going to discuss. Okay, so with everything in mind, this is my attempt to make it festive. If with everything in mind that we've gone through in terms of impact brain apnea, head injuries, etc., um, you are driving past in your ambulance just as that happens and you've watched him fall off the roof onto his head. Okay, so what are you going to do for him? There's lots of paramedics, so. <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, before that, so he's face down in the snow. Yeah, turn him over is a fair one. So, yeah, yeah, this isn't a trick. This is just chatting through. So, um, absolutely. So, you turn him onto his back and um, he isn't breathing. Yeah, so, and that's, yeah, the key, key take home here is airway. So, you're going to do something for him, aren't you? Um, and the graph that I haven't got to show you here, but how this fits in is actually if you ventilate those patients during that period of apnea, during that first minute, then you can stop the entire catecholamine surge from happening later on. So this is one of those things where, yes, we've got to think about catastrophic bleeding, but actually time is really critical in getting an airway in these patients. If you've got somebody who's disventilating, making that weird noise or just apneic in that phase, then the first thing that the thing that's going to make the difference to them long run is um, is getting that airway in. So, yep, fine. So you've popped your eye gel in. You're beautifully ventilating Santa. Where are we going from there? Yeah, so uh, when you, let's say we've, we've, we've magically moved him somewhere warm to keep you happy, but um, you're stripping him off and you're seeing, so A, B, C, D, E. So you're seeing some bruising to the right side of his chest, but you've got good air entry all over. Um, going on to C, not much to see in his abdomen, but he's definitely got a broken leg. It's deformed, but it's closed. So do you want to do anything for any interventions at this point? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So I pull it, pop it in a Kendrick. He's unconscious. You're ventilating him. He's not going to feel it, but it's stopping potential bleeding. So yeah, mechanism wise, you might want to put a binder on him. It'd be a fair shout if he's broken his leg, falling off a roof and got a head injury. Um, D, you get onto that, pupils are fixed and dilated, size six. Is that bad? Yeah. In the context of impact brain apnea, it's expected. So the usual, that disventilation, that initial phase, you will see fixed dilated pupils. These patients look completely dead, but with a minute or two of ventilation, you can turn them into a, a self-ventilating breathing patient. So yeah, expect to see fixed dilated pupils. Um, and then there's nothing else to see on exposure. So you pop him into the back of your truck. And just as you're getting onto the back of the truck, you notice he started making respiratory effort again for himself. And that's what you'd expect to see with these patients. So they start breathing. Now, dependent on the force of the hit and how long they've been apneic for, and if there are other injuries, will depend on what their GCS comes back up to. <laughs> he probably is drunk, yeah. He's had a lot of the whiskies from all the children. Um, and yeah, a lot of these patients have been punched and are drunk. Um, so the GCS can come back all the way up to 15 and these patients can go from not breathing to completely fine within a couple of minutes. But the, what tends to happen is you hit that middle group who improve to like a GCS seven or eight, but actually that's where it gets to. 
and ideally you either want to be very close to a hospital or hopefully you're being backed up by an enhanced care team that could RSI these patients because what they really need at this point is neuroprotective ventilation. So the thing you want to stop is that whole hypoxic, hypercapneic graph that I showed you that results in increased ICP. So you've done that early intervention and got them breathing again, um, but you now need to, to give them some neuroprotection. Um, so what is likely to happen to the course of that patient is you've beautifully put the binders on and everything. Um, you've taken them into hospital. Let's say you've, you've met Merit on the way and they've RSI'd them for you. And it's all, it's all going, you've done absolutely everything you can. They get into recess and the trauma team leader takes your hand over and then it's like, oh, well, you said the blood pressure was fine, but now there's no radial pulse. Um, and that's something that happens really commonly because that time of pre-hospital is like 30, 40 minutes. And that's also the time at which they get the cascolamine surge. And so what often happens is they'll hand over and then the ED team will be like, oh, they've missed the fact that they're bleeding to death because they've had that cascolamine surge. They'll give them a couple of units of blood before they go to scan to stabilize them. Now, the last thing those patients need is a couple of units of blood because they've got a knackered heart that's full of catecholamines that they're already squeezed as much as they can be. And they've got these necrotic bands and you suddenly put a load more blood in, increase that preload. And now that heart's going to struggle even more. So they're not going to respond to your blood. If anything, they're going to get worse. And this is where in hospital as a trauma team leader, it makes it really difficult because there's a patient with a broken, you know, there's a broken femur. We know they can bleed out from those we know there's a head injury there could well be something in between so it's a really fine balance between do you assume there's an injury and give them some blood or do you think about your brain apneas and your head injuries and your catecholamine surges and there isn't a right or wrong answer because it's a really horrible seesaw to sit on um, uh, this isn't going to conclude with some beautiful this is how you save everybody <laughs> because there isn't there isn't a good answer for this but what will normally happen to these patients is they'll have a couple of units will be like mm, let's put them through the scanner now the scan will show it is just um maybe some diff a diffuse axonal there'll be some gray white differentiation issues going on in the head but actually their chest and abdomen are fine and it's just a broken leg um and what they've so London have looked at their data set and they reckon about 25% of these die in ED because of the huge catecholamine surge and there's nothing we can do about that at the moment and that's where a lot of research is going into impact brain apnea and how we deal with the secondary effects at the moment um, but to try and put a more positive spin on it lots of them do go to ITU and get extubated a few days later so <laughs> it's not all doom and gloom and um, so the take-home messages from this are really that the key interventions are early, early airway, early ventilation, because that if the more you shorten that apneic period, even just opening the, an airway, even if you can't ventilate them, is going to make a huge difference to these patients. And just being aware of it, because if you get there 10 minutes down the line, someone might say to you, I promise you they weren't breathing when I got there. They, they looked like they, they were dead. And you'll be like, mm, they look like they're breathing now. That's how it all ties together. Um, and that is it. That was in fact brain apnea. So, any questions? <laughs> yeah. um, if we do have enough numbers on seeing <coughs> what sort of time frame does the ECG changes take to set in? And is there any value in catching an early one for then having a data to comparison to? Um, there's always benefit in an early one because 
half these patients are young and they'll have never had one before in their life so we yeah early is always good it tends to come with the catecholamine surge which you saw on the graphs can happen as soon as like two minutes in but tends to happen to the point where it's causing arrests and death 30 40 minutes down the line but yeah absolutely um, you'll start to see that blood pressure increase really early on so um, ECGs are key because there will be serial changes as well. It'll start with QT prolongation, then you'll get some of the ST segment changes and the troponin release. So, during that, well, that post um, ventilation stage, the disventilation, um, do the saturations change afterwards? You know, when they're in that GCS of eight or nine, do the sats drop or are they going back up to normal sats? So as soon as you ventilate them or they get back into that normal respiratory pattern, the SATs will come up quite quickly. Um, but even just that two or three minute period after where, where they drop and the, the CO2 goes up, that's the part that's causing that secondary brain injury. So they will come up quite quickly. It's not a, an oxygen exchange issue. It's, it's the fact that they aren't ventilating efficiently. So it wouldn't make a difference if you looking at the history of what you've been told has happened to keep them on the oxygen even though the saturations are looking normal would it be prudent to keep them on the too? Uh, yeah totally fair um, no so we know that too much oxygen in brain injuries causes free radical formation which will feed further into that pathway so um, you're still aiming for your, your 94 to 98 you're still trying to keep fit in that sweet spot um, it won't do them any good to over oxygenate at that point I suppose, yeah, following on from that, so say you do arrive at the scene or the patient arrives in ED and you suspect this has happened, but obviously you've missed the period of disventilation. Is there anything you can do in, is there anything you can do in that period between disventilation and the catecholamine surge to, I don't know, mediate that, prevent it happening, reduce the effect of it? Um, so that's where the research is at the moment. They're looking at beta blockers and things like that to try and stop that beta one, like, response to the catecholines being released and um, there there isn't any anything at the moment that i can say give that or do this um, you're just trying to optimize so this is where not increasing your preload not putting more stress on the heart unless it's necessary so utilize your ultrasound see if this patient's got an abdomen full of blood etc trying to rationalize your clinical decision making as, as to why you're giving products things like that is is the best thing you can do um, and again the, the neuroprotective ventilation so that pathway exists as your brain swells so the more swelling that's going on and and the more edema the more um sympathetic sort of innovation to your heart is getting more catecholamine release so it can be a continuous process or you can optimize their ventilation um, and put them into the best state and stop that release so it's just about optimizing everything you can rather than any specific intervention awesome Thank you very much. Full top, we've got another couple of questions. <laughs> What's the mechanism for the pupils being fixed and dilated but reverting back if it's not like popular motor compression? It's part of the reflex. So it's, a, it's that initial, the same reflex that's going from the bang to the stopping breathing. It's part of that reflex that, the, that it's basically, you basically look dead. Yeah, it's complete. So the, like, uh, there's a really good video of John Hines did where he said they would turn up to these motorbikes accidents and the patients would be dead they were sure they were dead and yet a minute later they'd start breathing by themselves um, and their pupils would go back to normal size and they'd never believe the first aiders that had told them <laughs> that that's what they looked like when they got there it's that initial reflex
just um, isolated brain injury um, and the hypertension as well. By reducing MAP, does that help in the re uh, reduction in the catecholamine release? So I don't, haven't read, I don't, haven't got any evidence to tell you yes or no for that is the honest answer. Um, I'm just trying to logically think through if it would or not, but... Um, I did a lower map with secondary brain. Yeah, that's the, the problem is, is the lower maps, yeah, it's going to make the secondary insult worse, which is going to cause a secondary catecholamine release. So I, I can't see it being an excellent mechanism, but it, this is something that they've looked at in animal models and only in the last sort of five six years have they started even looking at the human cases and because it's pretty rare still to get that massive head insult and somebody on scene early enough the research is really difficult so um i don't have a don't have a good answer right then awesome that's it for this care team sessions podcast you'll find information on how to get your cpd certificate in the podcast description if you've enjoyed this podcast don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also follow us on social media at WM Care Team. Thanks for listening.